Welcome to week 49 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week, I have chosen to revisit Reading Lolita in Tehran by Professor of Literature Azar Nafizi. She wrote the book after she had left Iran in 1997. It took her five years and it was published in 2003, although I myself didn't read it until 2008 or 2009. Since then, I've used it intermittently in classrooms as a non-fiction text to explore first the importance of reading and second, the interface between the personal and the political. The book, detailing the crackdown on women's rights and freedom in the years after 1979 up to the point where Nafizi and her family emigrated to the US in 1997, seems more poignant and relevant than ever. In the wake of the Green Movement protests between 2009 and 2010, and more recently, the protests provoked by the death of Masa Amini, it is achingly sad to read of the imposition of the veil, the divides between political and, rev and religious revolutionaries, the domination of brutal arbiters of morality in the streets, universities, and wider society in Nafizi's Tehran the increasing tension and intensity of the Islamic revolution, the fear of denunciation, of arbitrary arrest, of detention without trial, torture, rape, execution. An interesting aspect of the book is that it has, over the years, generated quite a bit of heat. On publication, the book was widely reviewed and attracted a good deal of admiration, but equally considerable opprobrium. The attacks on the book are mainly aimed at two areas beyond the actual content and scope of the book. The first is an assertion that Nafizi was influenced by neoconservatives and that the book has been used by neocons in the US to call for attacks on Iran. The second is that the book is trivial and insubstantial because it was so popular, because it depicted what is essentially a woman's book group, and both popularity and book groups are non-serious, lacking in intellectual heft, and consequently easily dismissed. The thing that strikes me now is how chauvinist and sexist both forms of attack are. Having read the book several times, I think it takes a particularly skewed perspective to see it as some kind of cry or demand for any kind of geopolitical action against the state of Iran. It is clearly a memoir, a record of both the women that Nafizi met in her years as a university professor in Tehran, most disguised to protect their identities, as well as the function of reading in a totalitarian or authoritarian regime. It is also a miserable record of violence and oppression that we now know definitively did happen. From the testimony of released prisoners the cruelty shown more recently to Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, the knowledge that women have been raped and murdered by the regime in prison and out, the increasing crackdowns and murder of especially young people in the regime is now public and undeniable. The book was not propaganda or exaggerated or some tale told to appeal to hawkish American politicians. Nafizi herself is the first to acknowledge that memory is not a reliable source, added to which she has deliberately altered and conflated the personalities, characteristics, appearance and names of the people she writes about. 
So in some respects, you could argue that the book could actually be read as a fictionalised memoir. The disguise is necessary to protect individuals still in Iran at the time of publication, but it is not a cover or mask for an invitation to engage in military conflict. And the idea that a book about women meeting to discuss literary classics would be, could be such a thing, is frankly daft. The second line of attack is even more ridiculous. Popularity is not an automatic indicator of poor quality. This is one of the ways in which modern, especially high culture, has become really reductive. If too many people like something, it must be suspect, shoddy, inadequate. Let's look at Dickens. He has his flaws, for sure, but he was one of the most popular writers of his age. Mozart was widely celebrated and fated as a child. Artists like Titian and Rubens were so sought after in their age that they could command their price and raise themselves from the humble status of artisan to the position of trusted diplomats to individuals in the courts of Europe. As for the book group business, the whole point of the book is to show just how constrained and constricted the lives of women had become in those years between the initial overthrow of the Shah's regime and the mid-90s when Nafizi was no longer able to make the necessary compromises to continue teaching at the University of Tehran. A private book group was able to become a conduit for ideas and an escape from a systematically brutal political environment. In this instance, a book group, like setting up a school in a war, zone, war zone or a ghetto, is a symbol of defiance, a form of opposition against oppression, a political act in itself. It's hardly trivial. The most egregious and ugly attack was by a US-based Iranian academic called Hamid Dabashi, who sought to dismantle both Nafizi and the book. His is the most flagrantly misogynistic example of this, but there are others, notably by the writer Gideon Lewis Krauss, writing in Slate in 2008 about both Dabashi's attack on the book and reading Lolita itself. His piece is preening, patronising and strongly suggestive of having scarcely read the book it purports to examine. The book is structured in four sections. The first focuses on two major works by Nabokov, Lolita and Invitation to a Beheading. The second is dedicated to Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. The third looks at Henry James, concentrating on Daisy Miller in particular, whilst the final part examines Jane Austen, primarily looking at Pride and Prejudice. When I first decided to use Reading Lolita in Tehran as a teaching text, I taught it alongside Nabokov's Invitation to a Beheading and Gatsby. I taught it to a class with which I'd already worked on Pride and Prejudice. Later, I re recommended Nafizi's work widely, at least in part, to one of the most gifted students I have taught, who wrote a brilliant extended essay on Lolita and Breakfast at Tiffany's. To some extent, I think Nafizi reconciled me to Nabokov. I knew of his negative attitude to women writers before I had read anything other than Lolita, a book which on first reading I found horrible and have struggled with on subsequent readings. Nabokov is all too successful with the first-person narrative of Humbert Humbert. Humbert consumes all the air in the story, 
making both Dolores and Charlotte Hayes nothing more than wispy handmaidens to his whims and desires. Nafizi sees Humbert and calls him a rapist, and Lolita Dolores as a double victim, losing not just her life, a girl of 17 dying in childbirth, but also control of her own story. She also clearly perceives a parallel between the Iranian regime and that of her students and herself, trapped in a society that as a whole behaves like the rapist Humbert Humbert, grasping, enforcing, violating its citizens, especially its women citizens. And as she observes, forcing their citizens, including their victims, to become complicit in their crimes. Although I had read Lolita Pinin and Pale Fire, I had not read Invitation to a Beheading before encountering Nafizi. But after reading Lolita in Tehran, I picked up Beheading and then began reading more of the work that Nabokov had written before he began writing in English. As I did so, the less important and central Lolita came to be seen by me in relation to the rest of his work. The encounter with Gatsby is very different. The section deals much more with the period when Nafizi is teaching in a university setting, trying to reconcile the increasingly strict rules and restraints on teachers and on women teachers in particular, with a need to do the proper work of a university teacher, work that sadly many university teachers now seem quite afraid to do that is, to introduce students to challenging and difficult ideas that we may not necessarily wish to engage with. In this world, Nafizi is well aware that some of the individuals attending her lectures are by no means genuine students. She is under constant surveillance in her classes, and several of the students are clearly informants. In some cases, they are overt opponents to the work of studying literature, in others, they're simply noting what Nafizi is saying, scribbling down her every word, suggesting, as well as what she looks like, how she appears, what she is trying to achieve. It is in these circumstances that Nafizi suggests to the class, following the outburst of one of the men assigned to keep her classes under observation, that they put the great Gatsby on trial. This follows the complaint of one of the students, named Mr Niazi, that the novel is immoral, corrupting and dangerous, and should be banned. The old and standard message of those so terrified of thinking for themselves that they wish to prevent anyone else from doing any thinking too. Nafizi nominates Niazi as the prosecutor of the book. A pair of female students act as the book's defence and Nafizi herself speaks like a witness from the perspective of the book, refuting the nonsense spouted by Niazi. A female student stands up towards the end of the trial, which has become a wider debate. She points out that readers do not mimic the actions depicted in a book. We do not all read Steinbeck and go on strike or head out for Curly's farm or take up whaling after an encounter with Moby Dick. Novels are not models. Although Niazi has argued that writers are assigned a special role in guiding men to a godly life. The true worth of a novel, according to one of the young women defending The Great Gatsby, is the ability, in quotes, to shake us out of our stupor and make us confront the absolutes we believe in. 
This is why literature, stories, narratives, poetry, our words, our languages have so often been the enemy of those intent on wielding power. Since those long, a day, long ago days when I was working alongside city traders, insurance evaluators, engineers and extractors of oil and gas, through to my students today, I have encountered people who proudly have declared that they do not read, they are too busy to read, that fiction in particular is unimportant, irrelevant, that it doesn't matter, or if it does, it is rarely but it is because it is written by manly men about manly men matters. That plethora of big fat books about guns, World War II, the galaxy, the economy, productivity, as well as the Mailers, Roths, Bellows and Updikes of the 20th century, whose books now seem to me to have aged poorly. By and large, the non-readers I have come across tend to be male, although the numbers of young women too busy to read has sadly been creeping up in recent years. Yet the scientific evidence is mounting that reading enriches our health, both physical and mental, that books keep us motivated, increase our empathy and soft skills, lower our blood pressure, and make us more intelligent and resistant to degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. The books will, as Milos so beautifully put it, remain there on the shelves and alongside the best music, the finest art, stand as testament to our ability to achieve radiance, heights. Reading Lolita in Tehran, like other books about books, such as Lucy Mangan's brilliant Bookworm and Francis Spufford's magnificent The Child That Books Built, is a love letter to the power of reading, of books, of language, to help us navigate dangerous currents, rough seas, perfect storms, and our imperfect lives. I loved both Mangan and Spufford's memoirs of reading and growing up in England, but reading Lolita is much darker altogether. The sections on Nabokov and Gatsby are mild compared with what comes with Henry James and Jane Austen. Nafizi asked her students to read two of James's shorter novels, Daisy Miller and Washington Square, alongside her own engagement with the Ambassadors. I was surprised that she did not include Portrait of a Lady as well, because James explores so effectively, so powerfully, the themes that emerge in the two shorter novels, namely the suppression of independence and agency in young women, chiefly, sadly, through marriage. Where her exploration of Nabokov and Fitzgerald touch on the broad brush impact of oppression on the individual, with a focus on the two 19th century writers, it is much more concerned with the limited choices available to young women. The second half of the book explores in much closer detail the impact of the constant policing of women's choices in Iran, both on society as a whole and on individual women. It has been nearly 45 years since the overthrow of the Shah. The corruption, hypocrisy and cruelty of the Islamic Republic of Iran has been laid bare over and over through its suppression of protest, its execution of perceived enemies within the state, 
the rape and murder of young women in and out of prison. There are also great films like Taxi Tehran and A Separation that show people's day-to-day -day struggles and dilemmas, as well as Ramita Navai's brilliant book, City of Lies. Like Nafizi's reading Lolita of necessity, it is a semi-fictionalised account of the lives of eight different people, each wrestling with the impact of the regime on their personal lives. Margaret Atwood wrote of reading Lolita in Tehran with admiration and respect, celebrating Nafizi's commitment and vision. It seems fitting to end with her words. Where reading is so curtailed and readers so deprived, the books themselves acquire a heightened value. They become an alternate reality, a source of hope, a matter of life and death. Join me next week when we look at another play by Shakespeare.